As we continue to worship, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of John. John chapter 1, specifically verses 14 through 18. Our choirs and our instrumentalists have led us so beautifully this morning, but not only this morning, but Friday evening and Saturday evening and candlelight tonight at 5 o'clock will be our last gathering for candlelight this year. And I know and you know If you've experienced candlelight before, it's just going to be wonderful as it has been Friday and Saturday. So we are immensely grateful for all the hard work and the faithfulness and the gifts that have been shared with us and will be shared this evening. So we invite you this evening to candlelight at five. One of my favorite Christmas traditions, I wouldn't say it's one of the favorite traditions of the Eldridge household, but it's uh, I was watching at least some of a Charlie Brown Christmas. I don't know what's on your movies and programs that you've got to see to be able to solidify the season. But this is uh, this is 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 one of the top shows that I want to see every Christmas. I, you know the story. It came out in 1965, so I don't think I have to give spoiler warnings to this. But Charlie Brown is down in the dumps. And he goes to Lucy and Lucy tries to cheer him up by giving him a task to do, to direct the neighborhood Christmas play. So if you remember the story, his directorial efforts are ignored, they're mocked, they're sneered at. He brings the centerpiece of his Christmas neighborhood play, this rather puny Christmas tree. And it's mocked, it's jeered at. He is complaining to Linus, if you remember the words, everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I don't really know what Christmas is all about. Is there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? It's at that moment that Linus steps up and says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Spotlight shines upon Linus, and then we hear the words inspired by God from Luke chapter 2. And they were in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their their flock by night. Since 1965, millions upon millions of people have heard the Christmas story told by this cartoon character. And it is amazing to me, God's common grace, that this would go out not only in our own nation, but it would go out worldwide to be able to remind us what is Christmas all about. And I, I don't think that there's any more specific words that are, would be better to share and to put. If I was the creator of the Peanuts cartoon, I, I think Charles Schultz has done a wonderful job giving us the very meaning of Christmas through Luke chapter 2. But if there is a close second, if there, if there is a passage that you could choose outside of Luke chapter 2 to put into Linus's mouth to answer the question, does anyone know what Christmas is all about? This would be that passage. Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. What is Christmas all about? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he comes after me, ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we've all received 
grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Church, there are a few passages in all the Bible that are more theologically significant than what you will find in verse 14. The word became flesh. You can spend a lifetime examining this passage and not get to the depths of it. He returns, John does, in his gospel in chapter 1. He bookends this section by returning to verse 1. And coming to show us what happens from verse 1 to verse 14. I remind you, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. We've already been introduced. The spotlight has shone upon the eternal, pre-existent Son of God. Who is the creator of all. And so we've already had the spotlight shining upon him. And now that spotlight is going to move to the creator becoming a part of his creation in verse 14. We're already going to see now as the eternal author that we're introduced to in verse 1 descends into verse 14, his own earthly story. The word became flesh. I love Eugene Peterson, the late Eugene Peterson, pastor, author, he has a paraphrase of the Bible called the message. And I don't think we, we can find words that get to the heart of verse 14 better than Peterson's paraphrase. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The one who had a heavenly address for 33 years took upon himself an earthly address. Now that word dwelt that you see in verse 14, is a, is a rich word. And to understand the richness of this word, you have to understand that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Before the coming of Jesus, it was translated into Greek. That's called the Septuagint. So the Greek word that is a word for tabernacle is the word that we find here from the Old Testament here in the New Testament. So it opens up uh, a wonderful exploration of what Jesus is doing. You remember in the book of Exodus, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and God tells them to create, to erect for them a, a tabernacle in the wilderness. This temporary structure where God will meet them, he will dwell among them. It's temporary, it's not permanent. David has it in his heart to build a temple, a permanent residence for God to dwell. David's not able to do it. Solomon does it. And then the spirit of God dwells in the temple and the glory of God comes upon the temple again. It's momentarily doing that. It's not forever. And so what we discover here in John chapter 1 is that Jesus, in contrast to the presence of God in the Old Testament dwells fully in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the living tabernacle. Jesus is the living, walking, breathing, talking temple. This is a powerful reminder. It gets us to the very meaning of Christmas. The one who has no beginning and no end will be born into this earth and will experience death. This is profound. This is a paradox. This is marvelous. This hurts our head. It stretches our head. It stretches our intellect to be able to describe what we're seeing here. And it's important for us to be able to to caveat what John is not saying. 
Because there is a temptation for us to miss the mark in trying to understand how 100% God becomes 100% man and remains 100% God. The math doesn't work. And if you look back over church history, one of the things you're going to discover from Nicaea to Constantinople to Chalcedon, these early councils that are gathering together the church leaders to be able to fully describe what the Bible is describing and what the Bible is not describing. And so many of the early councils were trying to to give words to what John is telling us. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh. Now I'm telling you, what John is not saying is this. That Jesus is a 100% God who comes into this earth and puts on a human disguise. It's tempting to want to say that. That Jesus is 100% God and, and he kind of pretends he, he has an earthly costume. Well, many of you maybe are going to go to the Magic Kingdom. You're going to do maybe an annual pilgrimage. Or maybe this is your first time that you're going to go on vacation to Disney and you're going to make your way to the Magic Kingdom because you've got a grandson, you've got a granddaughter, you've got a son, you've got a daughter. Or maybe even you would want to, to stand behind and stand beside Buzz Lightyear. Take a picture with Buzz to get him to sign and do sort of an autograph as you're getting all the characters there at Disney. And so Buzz Lightyear is beside you. Now what we know is, is that Buzz Lightyear is most likely a 20-year-old college student on break during the summer who has placed himself or herself in a Buzz Lightyear costume, walks around Magic Kingdom and says 333 times a day to infinity and beyond, to infinity and beyond, to infinity and beyond. What Jesus didn't do is enter into his earthly kingdom and then pull up a human costume and zip himself up. He is 100% God and 100% man, and we are tempted to diminish his divinity, to exalt and emphasize his humanity, or we're tempted to subtract from his humanity to give proper focus to his divinity. And so what we have to keep in balance, and it is paradoxical, is that he is 100% man and 100% God simultaneously. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 gives us the very words for this. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now the question, I, I, mean, I can see it in your eyes. Some of you are saying, what difference does this make? I mean, we're, we're crossing theological T's, we're dotting theological I's. But does this make any earthly difference to my life that the word became flesh? And the answer to that is a resounding yes in at least four ways for your life this morning. The first way is that Jesus has walked in our shoes and guess what, church? He knows our struggles. For Jesus to experience what you've experienced, he must take upon him 100% of humanity. Jesus could not truly experience trials or temptations Grief or death apart from becoming fully a human. We have in the incarnation an advocate before our father's throne who knows exactly, exactly what it, li- what it feels like to go through your life and my life. That, that is a powerful truth to hold on to 
We don't have a high priest, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What's the, what's the takeaway from this? Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I hope you understand just how reassuring this is. I hope you understand just how comforting this is that the eternal son of God has walked in our earthly shoes, that he knows what it is to feel the challenges that you and I feel. I have a friend of mine whose father owns uh, two popular restaurant franchises, or at least some of the, the, the stores under the umbrella of those restaurants. And he has them in Alabama, he has them in Mississippi. And my friend came through college and it was at sort of a fork in the road. Was he going to go in the direction of the family business, a business that his grandfather and his father had, or is he going to pave his own way? He decided after a lot of deliberation, a lot of prayer that he was going to do that. He comes back to his father and says, I want to go into the family business. And what does his father do? Hand him the key of three stores and say, go figure it out. The answer to that is no. They drafted out this plan that was going to take years for the son to come into the restaurant business and to do that by starting at the lowest rung of the ladder. So he would spend months and months and months, and add up to years. So, so that now that he oversees the portfolio of these restaurants, these fast food industries, uh, uh, restaurants, he, that, that when one of the drive-through employees comes to him and says, hey, we, we, we've got things, they're just not working, things are so backed up, he's able to say, hey, I know what it's like, I've been there. When a manager says, I've got some unruly customers who are giving me a lot of grief, he's able to look at them in the eyes and say, hey, I know, I know what it's like. I've been there. He knows what it's like to, to flip the burgers, to prepare the salads. He knows what it is to cash out the register at the end of the night. He's able to look into the eyes of his employees and say, I've been there. I know what it's like. I know the joys and I know the difficulties. He's walked in their shoes. Now, far more important for you to hear this morning is that we have an eternal son of God who has walked in our shoes. He knows what it is to experience true struggles. You ever been tired? Our Savior has been tired. You ever been tempted? Our Savior has been tempted. You ever been tried? Our Savior has been tried. You ever been bullied? You ever been betrayed? Our Savior has been bullied and betrayed. He knows what you are facing because he is, has faced it. This is the power of the gospel. You bleed, he is bled. You weep, he is wept. You face temptation, he has faced temptation. You and I we will all come to that moment of death. So our Savior has embraced death itself. So Jesus has walked in our shoes and he knows our struggles. Jesus has walked in our shoes and he shows us the way. A few weeks ago, we had some uh, of one of my son's friends over to the house and I saw he was wearing a bracelet. And I said, what is that bracelet? And he showed it to me and it was a WWJD bracelet. It goes around, comes around. That was really popular in the late 90s, mid 90s when I was a student pastor. That was sort of the craze. What would Jesus do? You can get your own t-shirts uh, with that on it. You could get your own bumper sticker. What would Jesus do? 
It comes from an early 20th century book, a novel by Charles Shelton in his steps. Actually, the phrase is not in the book, but the essence of the book is asking the question is, what would Jesus do? It's a good question to ask as long as you have some limitations and understand that there is a cultural distance between a, a first century Palestinian man walking around, living, talking in that context, and, and a, a young woman or a mother or a father in uh, 2022 in the Birmingham metro area. There, there, is a, there is a cultural distance. It's probably not helpful for us to, to say when we come to a fork in the road and say, what instrument am I going to play in the band to ask ourselves, well, what instrument would Jesus play? It's probably not that helpful if you're trying out for the football team to say, I don't know if I should try out to be a wide receiver or a defensive back or a quarterback and to say, what would Jesus play? It's probably not that helpful for us when we're hungry after church to say, what restaurant should we go to eat at? Wendy's or McDonald's? Well, the answer would be Chick-fil-A, but they're closed on Sunday. So So you get where I'm going with this here. But at the same time, even with that disclaimer here, I want you to understand that when we look back and are able to peer into the Gospels, there is a sense where we say, what would Jesus do when he was betrayed? I mean, what would Jesus do if he was betrayed? There's not an if to it. There's a when he was betrayed. And we see it in the Gospels. What would Jesus do if he was tempted. There's not an if to it. We're able to say, what did Jesus do when he was tempted by Satan himself? What would Jesus do if he came into contact with those that were marginalized and those that were pushed to the fringes of society, to those who were looked over and forgotten about and called quote unquote sinners? We don't ask the if to that. We say, what did he do when he faced that? Now, his life is not an exhaustive encyclopedia that we're able to flip through with every hypothetical question that we might bring to it, but he shows us a way. He models before us what it looks like for a first century Palestinian man to live in full obedience to the Father. So we look back over his life and guess what it does with the spirit of God that dwells in us? It shows us a way forward in our own lives. It shows us a way to depend upon the Father, to follow the Father, to live out a a path of obedience in your life and my life. So Jesus has walked in our shoes, church, and he shows us the way. He's walked in our shoes and he knows our struggles. He's walked in our shoes and he has experienced death itself. We can't talk about Christmas without focusing our attention upon Easter. Actually, I would say it's it's theological malpractice to focus our heart's attention upon the incarnation without ever getting to the crucifixion or the resurrection. It's like watching the first five minutes of a movie. Cutting the movie off, going on with your life and saying, yeah, I think I figured out what's going on there. No, there is a cross-shaped shadow that looms over the manger in Bethlehem. And anytime that we focus our eyes upon the cradle, it always draws our heart to the cross. This is the full story of why he came. He came not just as a baby, to be cute and cuddly, but to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death and to be raised to defeat sin, hell, and the grave itself. Years back, 
Daniel and I received, and we, we were talking about this this week and can't quite pinpoint who gave this to us, but we ended up with an ornament. It was a very unique ornament. We hadn't had anything given to us like this, nor had we re, uh, bought something like this before, but it was an eight-inch iron spike, an ornament to put up in our Christmas tree. It reminds us of the Roman soldiers nailed that went into our Savior upon the cross. If I can be honest with you here, I, I want my Christmas tree to be fairly sentimental, kind of comfortable, cozy. Let, let's put a lot of things that, uh, that, that Hayden, Luke, and Jonathan drew when they were four years old and five years old. Let, let's, let's keep the manger cozy and comfortable. But the more you think about it here, as you gaze upon the tree, it is helpful for us to be reminded that those soft, tiny hands that clung to the finger of the Virgin Mary would one day be pierced by sharp iron spikes. Anytime we meditate upon the cradle, our heart's affection should go to the cross. Jesus has walked in our shoes and he's experienced death, church. He shows us the way, he knows our struggles, and he extends grace to each and every one of us. Do you know this, that Jesus has walked in our shoes and extends grace to each and every one of us that are gathered here this morning? Go back to the passage in verse 14, verse 16, verse 17. I want us to do a word scavenger hunt here. I want you to listen for the word that you think is the significant word that you're going to hear again and again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law, verse 17, was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What word did I want you to find? Is there any better word in all of the human language than this five-letter word, grace? This word that we find in verse 14, this word that we return to in verse 16, this word that we see again in verse 17, grace. God's love bestowed to us as sinners, undeserved, unmerited, his love to us. Grace, I love that old Acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. It gives us a good inkling of what grace is. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's God's love communicated to us through Jesus. A reminder that Jesus, he brims with grace. He overflows with grace. He is grace embodied upon this earth here. And so at Christmas, we, we stop not to just analyze grace, not to just discuss grace, not to just see the origins theologically of grace, but we must receive by faith his grace. And Christmas is a time to remind us of the direction of salvation. Salvation church is a one-way street. It's a one-way street from eternity to this earth, from heaven to this earth, from God to us. Christmas is not about you creating your best gift to give to God. It is all about God extending his love to you and giving the ultimate gift to us, his grace. A few years back, there was a, a popular ESPN documentary series called 30 for 30. And there have been a lot of spinoffs of this. 
But the original 30 for 30 had one of the entries into it called the, the Four Falls of Buffalo. Any football fans here would remember from 1990, 91, 92, 93, that the Jim Kelly-led Buffalo Bills get to, the, uh, get to the Super Bowl every year, and they come up just so short, four years straight. So this documentary, the director chronicles this so close but not quite yet journey of this one football team. And at the outset of it, we, we get to hear the story that's fairly familiar when you come to field goal kickers who, who before uh, tens upon, uh, you know, I mean really hundreds of millions of people fail publicly. You remember, they're playing the Giants, eight seconds left. Scott Norwood has a 47-yard field goal and he misses it. If he makes it, they win. If, they, if he makes it, it's utter celebration. The director is interviewing Scott Norwood decades later and still you can see the sorrow. He actually says it when asked what, what, what emotions, they're showing him the video, what emotions come to mind? Sorrow, he says. I, I guess disappointment and letting down my teammates that are there with me on the field of battle. I didn't know this, but, but in this documentary, it shows some archival footage of the Bills going back home greeted by 30,000 fans, sneering them, booing them. The answer to that is no. Embracing them with applause. So you see the footage kind of close in on this field goal kicker who lost the game for them, Scott Norwood, and he doesn't want to go out in front of all of these fans because surely he's going to receive from them boos and hisses, but they start chanting his name, Scott, 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 30,000 fans calling for him. If I was him, I would not want to be on that stage. Because, of course, he's already experienced so much humiliation. Of course, he's lived this out before everyone. But finally, very sheepishly and against his will, he's drug up to the front. And he receives from 30,000 fans the most extended and embracing of ovations that goes on and on and on. Instead of boos, instead of sneers, He's embraced. They give him a mic. And there in his greatest public failure, he says, I have never felt more loved than I do right now. I've never felt more loved than I do right now. Of course, he was expecting condemnation. Of course, he was expecting humiliation that would just be further humiliation. But instead, he received a small taste of amazing grace. And I want you to know, we might not feel like this, but every one of us have missed the mark. Every one of us have failed. And we have failed publicly before the eyes of a holy God who sees all, and he sees our misses. He sees our failures. 
He sees how we tried and came up short. He sees the things that we should have done that we didn't do, the things that we should have said but we didn't say, and the things that we shouldn't have said that we did say. He sees it all, and he sees how we miss the mark. But Christmas is a reminder that instead of us receiving what we actually deserve to receive, we receive the sound of heavenly applause. Because our Savior has paid our price. And we receive his love and his grace, which is still so amazing. Let us pray.